talk about the scenario that I'd love to see with AI in healthcare because I think that I also am an AI optimist at the same time of just being aware of how it works and what can go wrong. I think we should be aware of what it could do if we could give it the right uh, security and privacy and permissions. Hello and welcome back to the Women of Web3 podcast. I'm Lauren Ingram and I'm the founder of Women of Web3. We're a community and a consultancy, and we've been educating thousands of women about Web3 and sharing jobs, events, and learning resources like this podcast. In every episode, I'll be interviewing an incredible leader about their learnings. We start off by breaking down the Web3 jargon, then we head deeper down the rabbit hole. Please do subscribe and give us a rating. It really helps more people find the podcast. Now, you're probably listening to this podcast because you want to learn about Web3, but have you ever considered how to actually use it in your job? At MDRX, they build digital products using Web3, blockchain, machine learning, and AI, but with purpose as the foundation, never just tech for tech's sake. So why not download their cheat sheet? It's packed with top tips on why your business should give a damn about Web3 and see whether Web3 is actually right for you in your job, your business, or even your career. So whether you're looking to optimize your business strategy or leverage tech to stay ahead of the competition, MDRX have got you covered. I'm really excited to be working with them because they live and breathe Web3. And I love that they see tech as an enabler and not as the end goal. And because they're the tech consultancy arm of law firm Mishkondorea Group, they know everything there is to know about the legalities of Web3. And if you've ever tried to launch a legally compliant NFT project, DAO, anything like that, you'll know it's really complex and you need a trusted partner. Go and download their cheat sheet now by clicking on the link in the description. Now, we're coming towards the end of season two of the Women of Web3 podcast, and we've got something slightly different for you. So I'm delighted to have AI expert Courtney Abercrombie join the show, because as well as having an incredible career in AI, she's brilliant at making these concepts super accessible for anyone to understand, making the tech relevant to your life, which is something we really care about at Women of Web3. So for the purists out there, AI isn't officially part of Web3. We're not talking about decentralization and blockchain, but it is very much part of the next iteration of the internet. So Courtney's background is she was chief data officer for IBM for years and built an incredible career there you're going to hear all about. She's now the founder and CEO of AI Truth, a non-profit for the responsible creation and use of AI. She's also the author of What You Don't Know, AI's Unseen Influence on Your Life and How to Take Back Control. So it should be a very juicy topic. I hope it doesn't scare anyone. It does get a little bit dark in places, but it should be seriously informative. So without further ado, here's Courtney. Welcome to the show, Courtney. Can you start off by saying a bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah. So basically, I'm the CEO and founder of a nonprofit called AI Truth. And um, the reason I started AI Truth was because I was part of an AI incubator within a large company that we all would know. And basically, I was uh, going around to all of the big like global 50 basically uh, companies and looking very intricately at the AI operations and the AI solutions that were being built and trying to understand, hey, can we scale these out and make them available for other clients in some sort of joint venture capacity or something like that with with the existing clients that we had. And some of those were, I got to see like over 150 different use cases. And this was back for AI. Uh, This was back in 2016 when AI in the enterprise anyway was really just kind of starting. Um, AI has actually been around for 50 years or more. You know, we have Alan Turing with the first Turing test. And some people would argue that that was really, um, you know, the first 
uh, forays into artificial intelligence was back in those um, 1950s. But in the enterprise, I would say in 2016, that's really when it really started to take off. Um, And so that's where my role was. As part of that, though, when I was going around to all these different clients and I would see what was going on and often one of the only women in the room, right? <laughs> so, so I do wish more women would be out there looking at these situations because what happens is you'll inevitably have to make some decisions yourself as a person trying to make and create and develop artificial intelligence. And as part of those decisions, since I was pretty much um, taking apart the pieces and trying to figure out what did they create under the hood of these AI solutions and could they be repeated somewhere else, I quickly found out that there's a lot of bad decisions in terms of like erroneous, fast, lazy, (laughs) lots of different, lots of different weird things would be going on behind the scenes. And that's literally why I was like, okay, I'm going to go off. I'm going to found this nonprofit and I'm going to create this book about all the major areas in our lives that people don't know about. And the book is called What You Don't Know, um, AI's Unseen Influence in Your Life, and more importantly, how to take back some control. I would love to get your your definition of generative AI. And actually, if it's okay, also just defining how you see artificial intelligence or like how you would encapsulate that in like the sort of short, sharp way of like what it means to real people. Because yeah, people seem to really enjoy the jargon busters. And as an AI expert, I'd, be, I'd love to hear your your version of things. And after that, I would love to hear more about the kind of how AI affects our real lives and also hear about your career. Because it sounds like you've had a pretty, well, really interesting career so far. So um, tell me your, your definitions first. So, well, generative AI, basically, that's something new from something old. Basically, uh, I think the the best example I can give is one that everybody can think of when they think about generative AI, which is, I think, the avocado chair, because generative AI right now has been, as we know it, in the largest sense, has been put towards large language models. So things like ChatGPT, which are very popular right now, which are predicting the next best word from the old stuff that we have out on the internet and everywhere else in the world, um, because they've used open repositories, the open source data, which is just out there in the world, um, and to formulate what are the next uh, words that will come if I start a sentence with this, or if I ask for certain types of information. And so it creates a whole new thing. And the same goes for the avocado chair. So you're actually creating something new from an avocado and a chair, but it's an image in that case. So DALI is, is similar to ChatGPT in that it generates a new image instead of a new set of words that become some kind of a uh, in some sort of context that we know. So like uh, when we say a chair, it knows the concept, it knows images of chairs, it knows images of avocados. So it creates something that has lots of different avocado chair looking things, right? <laughs> and that's kind of fun to play with um, because we're creating something new from that. In the past, it's always been about retrieving, like you just retrieve information and it brings you the avocado and it brings you the chair, not an avocado chair. <laughs> That's a really helpful way of describing it. And before we jump into what you do now as your as founder and CEO of AI Truth, I'd love to hear about your career so far. 
Where did you start out and how did you end up somewhere like IBM? So I actually started out as a marketing analyst and I was, I started my world as a, uh, with a master's of business administration, but I had always had a love of data and analytics and, um, because I always felt like the people who knew, um, the most about the business at the time when I started my career were often the finance people. And, uh, because they knew all the ins and outs of what was making money and what wasn't. And inside business, if you follow the money, generally you will figure out what's working for your business and what's not working for your business. And you'll be able to figure out trends and patterns. If you look in the marketplace at your competitors and who's making the most money there. So, so I kind of took this, um, power dynamic that I found inside of uh, several large companies that I had been working with, um, where finance people were like, you know, everything they said went and anything anybody else said didn't go, especially when it came to marketing people. And marketing people were like, hey, you know, we need a little more power here to, to, to be able to show that we know that these customers, what these customers want, and we want to have a say about um, how we give the customers what they want, um, as opposed to, you know, right now we just rely on salespeople to tell us. And that was back 20 something years ago when that was more important. And analytics was very much not being used inside companies because people really didn't know how to get the data and uh, use it that way. So that's where I started my career is like in that area and producing uh, analytic um, feedback uh, to any party that would listen to me basically within a company, especially the ones with strategic power. Amazing. And uh, where did you take things from there? So because I had always loved data and analytics and I, you know, I, I had this amazing boss when I was fresh out of school that just told me, look, you can do anything that those IT guys can do. And I will make sure that we will, because we had money. We just couldn't get the IT people to do anything that we wanted them to do. So he was basically like, well, you're willing and able, and you're very curious and you have like a, an analytics brain. So let's just send you to whatever classes the IT people are taking, go find out what they're taking and go there. So I went to SQL, uh, like a, a a SAS university and a uh, Oracle SQL university. Literally, there was an Oracle university, no, no fooling. And it was just right down the way. So I went and took two weeks worth of classes there and a two weeks worth of classes at a SAS a, and, and SPSS and all these other statistical um, software places and, uh, and came back and just started experimenting with every kind of data. And then from there, I got a lot of attention uh, real quick on all the different areas that I was pointing out. And suddenly it, it was kind of like, wow, I can just kind of write my ticket anywhere because once these marketers had the all of this and they were successful using all the analytics, other marketers at other companies also wanted that. So it was kind of like, um, it was awesome because I got to pick where I was going and, and you know, I, I was leveling up really fast. Um, so then I found myself, I had more stuff than I could do. And, uh, and, and I had decided to have a kid and I was like, all right, you know, I kind of want to back this down a little for a little bit and just like, maybe do some part-time work until she's like one. And so, uh, IBM was offering that and, uh, they were very friendly to, to new mothers in terms of flexibility of working hours and working from home at that time before everybody else was and way before the pandemic. And so I really enjoyed, um, getting to work with a, a virtual team early on. And that's how I 
came to be at IBM uh, was they were offering market intelligence positions uh, that could work from home. And then from there, I started developing um, predictive analytic uh, models uh, for their sales teams and understanding how is it that when you go, and it was business to business, which is a little more hard because there's not as much information inside of businesses about how businesses operate in terms of what groups by what. So it could be a challenge, which I loved. (laughs) So I was like, yeah, let's do it. And uh, I started analyzing, well, what is it that these types of roles within a company would purchase? And what times of years are they are they purchasing them? What's their like purchase cycle? And when's the best time to kind of hit them up for that extra thing? So we, you know, we did what you call growing the share of wallet, but also growing the number of customers. And that was very successful. So I just kept moving up from there. And then finally, one day um, they said, you know, we're selling a lot of analytics into a lot of different places and companies, which I already knew because I had been doing those predictive models to try and find those people inside of companies and what to sell them. And they said, you know, it's kind of strange because we keep selling the same packages to the exact same people. I mean, to the exact same companies, but in different departments. So it tells us that they need like one person in charge of data and analytics at their companies. So they actually asked me, they tasked me with like, basically treat this new role, chief data officer, as if it's your product. You're going to go launch this role in the market and you're going to go and talk about this role to CEOs and and you're going to set up the hiring structure uh, with a lot of the major, like the big uh, hiring firms uh, in data and analytics, uh, like Hydric and Struggles, for example. And I, so I did. I went and talked to these major um, people who sought uh, data and analytics and tried to get them into as many different companies. I did a showcase of, of the only few, uh, three or four chief data and analytics officers at the time uh, with like Wall Street Journal and other uh, major journalist groups to try and uh, show what these kinds of roles could do within companies. And then I launched one of the biggest at the time, it was like 2013, 2014, chief data officer roles community at the time. And so then I knew all of these chief data officers and all of these analytics officers, and it was amazing. And I still do. And I love them very much. And we still have major relationships because in the beginning, it was really hard for them. And, uh, and so then I went into AI because I was like, you know, we've done data governance. We've done a lot of business analytics and optimization. Um, but you know, I'm ready to move into the more, um, innovative side of data. And so that's when I I picked up and and moved into uh, the services group doing consulting around AI. And that's when I became that AI incubator inside of that group. What an amazing journey that you're only sort of halfway through it, presumably. It sounds like you've you've had to sort of be a pioneer for a lot of this stuff. And I, I do also see parallels with women of Web3 in terms of you're getting people to care about this new area make sense of it demystify it and also show what the sort of benefits or like what's the value of it to people and like their jobs their their lives I mean, that's a lot of the same role that we have to play with women of web three or, or even like the podcast that's what you know, we want to make this stuff accessible to anybody and presumably you had to do a lot of that in that navigation that sounds amazing about if other people hadn't sort of cracked that you had like such valuable knowledge like no wonder you were able to kind of go up the ladder quickly um, and also what a powerful network you were building by sort of connecting with the other 
chief data officers. So, um, and, and on that point about sort of demystifying AI and you know making everything accessible, I'd love to know a bit more about how you talk about it to kind of man or woman on the street, as it were, um, you know, someone outside of sort of tech and data, etc. Where do you start when you're talking about it? Do you sort of go straight in with like relating AI to people's lives or like other particular products you talk to them about or yeah, where do you start? People don't care about AI, actually. Surprisingly, <laughs> despite my career in AI, what I learned when I started just asking regular questions when I was trying to develop this book for, not just develop the book, but really develop a platform for communicating with just regular people out there in the world, just living their daily lives. I wanted them to know what's going on with AI, you know, and how it's kind of affecting them subversively because it's under, you know, it's under everything in our lives. And I don't think that's one thing that anybody really understands. So how can they say that they, they don't know that AI is out there affecting them? They just know, hey, it's getting harder to get a job. It's getting harder to, um, you know, be around my friends online because they're getting so polarized about these political things or I'm seeing so many political things and I don't really want to. Mm. They define things differently. And what I learned is you have to talk about AI in terms of their lives, um, not <laughs> in terms of AI. <laughs> like, I mean, nowadays there's lots of... Um, articles as of chat GPT. I think there's even more articles and now people are kind of paying attention more because they're worried, oh, are my kids going to cheat on a test using chat GPT or, you know, what's happening? Why is this thing so scary to all these major influencers of AI? Like they see the headlines and they kind of go, oh, that's interesting, but I really don't think that affects my life. And I just kind of thought, you know, it is affecting your life. It actually is very much affecting your life. As a matter of fact, there's lots of systems, financial systems out there that are affecting you right now that are using artificial intelligence and machine learning capabilities and you don't know it. And mm. a lot of data breaches um, and a lot of security hacks happen because AI, you know, there's a lot of AI that was formed that the people who developed it really didn't think about the security of it. Um, or the privacy of it at all. Um, they were just trying to produce this thing that they were creating. And so when my, when I start telling people, well, did you know, for example, that you know the pandemic was actually one of the largest times in history for human trafficking? And they're like, what? No. I'm like, yeah. And the kids being trafficked were sitting right next to their parents while it was happening. And the suicide challenges, if you remember those. I mean, those are kind of the dark side, right? Where... People care about what's happening to their kids, but they don't necessarily know that it's AI that's helping like a whole network of perpetrators link up. Mm. Um, like, for example, we know that the YouTube algorithm is, a, is highly strong in recommending, right? It's a, it's a huge AI recommendation engine. When you do one YouTube video, it's going to try to predict what your next YouTube video is. And unfortunately, for children who want to be influencers, if they're putting out just innocent little swimming pool pictures of themselves and they're talking with their friends, but they're hanging out at the gymnastics place or they're doing something that, you know, triggers some sort of a perpetrator, 
um, then the perpetrators go out and they timestamp on the comments section of these videos. And those timestamps get immediately picked up by this, this network. Um, and so overnight, the kids think they've become some sort of YouTube star. But in fact, what's happening is there's a whole group out there that's disturbingly distributing content that and timestamping um, parts of videos um, to share with their perpetrator friends. And it's just like, but that's the kind of stuff that people, everyday people aren't thinking about when they think about AI recommendation engines, they think, oh yeah, so YouTube does give me kind of some weird recommendations for videos every now and then. Or yeah, sometimes I have gotten some conspiracy theory things just from, you know, people talking around my house about it or something in the background is playing something about conspiracy theories. Like maybe you have a television on in the background and because uh, there's all these listening uh, mechanisms now to pick up the noise in the background and try to Facebook is a prime example of that. When you're having a Facebook app open on your mobile phone, it's listening. So, I mean, there's like a thousand, try it out for yourselves. Don't believe me. I want you to try it and see what you think. Start talking about something that could be sold to you. Mm. Talk about your favorite coffee beverage or something like that and see how long it takes for it to come up with something. Test these things yourself. Um, it's it's really disturbing, right? Because your your privacy is being um, you know violated in ways that you're not really understanding. Um, and who's going to read that mile long list of stuff that they give you um, to look through about your privacy? And they say, well, you can use it or not. But for some people, not using social media is kind of like being left out of your social group you know, um, because that's where they do all the communicating. So is it really even an option for some people who have long distance relationships, you know, to not uh, get on social media and to not be involved? Mm. Anyway, those are some of the issues. That's how I address a lot of things is just by what people care about instead of trying to address it as AI because people don't care about AI. <laughs> yeah, I, I can I can totally believe that. And um, I found a lot of that very shocking, including what you're saying about the um, kids uploading videos that are like that really upsets me just thinking about it. And uh, I'm, I'm interested in, in the listening idea of like, because I, I know that's a kind of like common thing you hear or like Certainly in the UK, it's very much like a sort of pub folklore of like, that's what, you know, you hear in, in like, you know, bars is being like, oh, Facebook's listening to you, like, you know, watch this. But I'd always been convinced also as someone that was working at Facebook, I've always been told or aware of the fact that because we willingly give so much information to platforms such as Facebook, it could pretty accurately predict even what like coffee chain I'd be likely to say based on my interests and who I am and who I socialize with and that kind of thing. So I mean, obviously that's still kind of AI powered is like just like sweeping that data together and spitting out okay what's Lauren going to do next like you know I'm sure Facebook or even you know YouTube Twitter slash X could uh could predict a lot about me and how I'm going to spend my day well that's what they all say too I mean it is controversial for sure mm. um and that's what they that's the standby comment too and I would say you know Facebook is like every other company out there you don't necessarily even you know IBM people would point out constantly to me well IBM's working on this or that or this and that that and the other it's huge how would i know <laughs> how would i know what, yeah what different people are working on within and especially if it's something that they don't want you to know that they're working on you'll never know <laughs> so <laughs> i think the best way to do is just you test it yourself 
You know, I think everybody should yeah. test, test these things out and see um, if you mention it so many times and it actually picks it up. Mm. Maybe there's something more there. But yeah, I do. I talk about a lot of this stuff um, in the book and like I, I explain how would it work uh, and if they are doing that, in fact. But what they do say is that they are not doing that, that they're not listening. Alexa also says that. Amazon's Alexa group also says that. And then when they go to requisition anything for a murder or anything like that, magically they 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 say we don't we don't even keep that information, and yet they were able to bring it forward in a murder trial. So it's kind of like, well, then what's the truth of this? Mm. You know, I just think it's been interesting, and I, I feel like there's a lot that people need to know. Yeah, I mean, I know that uh, I've also heard you speaking elsewhere about AI literally affecting life and death choices. So I've, I realize we're going down like a bit of a dark rabbit hole with this stuff. I think it's really interesting. I, th- I think people, I think listeners will find it interesting to understand yeah, what these use cases are in like practical real life and how that affects our, our real lives. So do you want to tell me a bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, and it's true. This is all of this, I think. Um, and I want to put it back to your context and why you do this show, because I think all of these things that we're bringing up while they're negative, there's also some amazing Um, In that same healthcare chapter where I talk about life and death decisions, I talk about the scenario that I'd love to see with AI in healthcare, because I think that I also am an AI optimist at the same time of just being aware of how it works and what can go wrong. I think we should be aware of what it could do if we could give it the right uh, security and privacy and permissions. It could be just absolutely amazing. And um, I mean, talk about taking care of elderly from afar and helping them follow a diet. I think even in the future for healthcare, I think doctors will actually prescribe algorithms, but I think women would have to be a key part of this ecosystem of developing AI. And right now we're just not. And I would love to encourage more women who are even thinking about getting into that field of AI to get into it because we need you. We need you to think about um, connecting the dots in ways that guys don't think about. And thank goodness we're all different people and we come at problems in different ways. But a lot of the developers that I see now who are men, they think very logically, very linearly about things. I think women, we're always connecting every dot everywhere. And that's what makes us amazing in addition to men. So when we, when, and men in addition to us. So, I mean, when we look at, you know, they can develop things logically linearly and that's a strength of theirs. And we look at things all the time, all the place, everywhere, like just like the movie, right? <laughs> everywhere, all the, all, all the time and what, what not with Michelle Yeoh. <laughs> I like that idea because I feel like that's where we're, we're strong is um, being able to connect multiple dots at any time. And we just don't have enough women out there doing that. And when we talk about healthcare decisions, especially, I think about you know, I love my husband dearly, but I don't know if I, you know, he doesn't really even know how to pick a good gift for me half the time, <laughs> like predict what would my lot, my wife really like, you know, like, <laughs> um, and I appreciate, you know, I love him and I don't know that I could necessarily pick the best gift for him either. But the fact is that women we're 50% or more of the population. And to just have one group representing us, you know, in all of our complex health needs, 
you know, whether we need some sort of a breast cancer diagnostic or whether we don't is currently in the hands of um, largely men because we don't have enough women in the field to really be in there saying, wait a minute. Yes, women do need this because we have these struggles and we just need more women in the field in general. But yeah, so going back to how did healthcare uh, life and death, sorry, you did ask me a direct question. I will answer the question, but how did it go about selecting life and death? And because one of the areas that is big in healthcare right now is uh, where AI is being used is clinical diagnostics, trying to understand what's wrong with a person. And during a crisis of care situation, which is what we saw during the pandemic, we had not enough doctors because they were getting sick and or retiring because they were like, uh-uh, I'm too old to deal with this. I can't, you know, I, if I go into this situation, we don't have enough younger doctors out there that could probably live through you know, this virus, this unknown virus, we didn't know what was going to happen at the time, right? So lots of doctors just quit. And we have in that situation, way more patients than could even be treated. It's an unfortunate situation. I don't think that this is where we would want to use AI on the regular, but it did get used and it got programmed by, you know, what's the set of instructions that we want to give for Um, that we as humans give this machine learning uh, capability. When someone enters an intake form online for us, we're going to triage them and figure out who is the most able to survive. And that's where it got really scary. Who's able to survive um, is not the normal care that you would receive in a hospital. You would always receive care regardless. And they will make it their top priority. A doctor would always make it a top priority to care for you. That's their normal instruction set that they learn in medical school. You will always be crisis of care. It comes down to who can we save the most and is most likely to live. If you were older, your chances of being intubated and coming off of it, so 70 and above, they already knew you're not going to make it because you have to be able to go onto this for six weeks or more and then come right back out of it when we actually have to unintubate. And not only that, but there was a a shortage of those um, ventilator machines that do, you know, talking about intubation. So when you're talking about who, who would I be giving this very scarce resource to, it came down to, it ultimately came down to a lot of it was age and pre-existing conditions. Did you have things like high blood pressure, diabetes, and heart disease? And if you, if you didn't have those and you didn't have a presence of um, old or older age, you were more likely to get the ventilator over someone else who needed it. And that was the set of instructions during crisis of care. So was AI trying to decide or was it deciding who was living and dying? In that case, you could say yes, because it was deciding who got those scarce resources. It's it's kind of, well, it really is brutal. But I also wonder in that instance, for example, it, it feels awful, the idea of a computer deciding whether that person should essentially like potentially live or die. But also maybe there is some benefit there that like, if it's if it's humans putting the weighting against each of those factors, it would then mean that doctors who are doing this stuff on the fly during a pandemic don't have to make those minute decisions and actually like, you know, looking at one person to another of like almost it would come down to what feels like who do I care about more? Like who do I care about saving more? Maybe there's some benefit there to kind of taking that responsibility away. Definitely. For everything AI, for everything, every technology, right? There's always the good and the bad. Mm. And is the good better than the bad? Um, You know, is it worth it, basically, is the question. And I think 
during that crisis standard of care, during the pandemic, all normal reality got suspended because you you were going to make a decision one way or another and several more were going to die while you were waiting to make that decision Mm. as a, as a professional. And what's even worse was that I think it was seen as a humane benefit to doctors during that time. Um, not worse, but I guess what I mean is, um, because we want to think of humans making the decision. Mm. It was actually a relief to the doctors who were already psychologically overwhelmed from all of the patients who were dying at that time, Mm. you know, for them to have to make even more decisions. It was actually a relief for them not to have to take a look at, you know, the patients, um, especially in Italy where it first started. If you remember, they were having to make these decisions against people they knew their whole lives. They said, um, when they, the interviews. Um, Mm. And I kind of, I love to look at those human aspects to remind us that these technologies still have humans that are there working with these decisions. And so when it's, when they were, when, you know, if they could have used these algorithms to make those decisions, it kind of gives them a little bit of a psychological out, you know, to say, well, you know, I've known uh, Noni or somebody my whole life, you know, how could I, how could I tell them they can't have this in, you know, incub- you know, ventilation machine when this other person gets it that I, I, they're younger, you know, so the thought is they're younger, they probably don't need it. But in fact, in that time they did. So in a lot of ways, it was psychologically relieving for a lot of the doctors not to have to make those decisions and, and then tell the patients based on that. At the end of the day, though, somebody always had to tell the patients and it mm-hmm. was kind of like, um, and the, in the UK, mm-hmm. And they actually were still using that as a triage system for her because there was such a backlog in the um, National Health Service and, and who was going to get care um, next for beyond pandemic reasons when they opened things back up and there were more doctors available to treat just regular things like broken legs and, <laughs> and things like that. They were trying to triage once again, like who's the least able to wait on what they have and what's the most emergency situation out of these types of conditions and who would get the first right to see a doctor again um, after they opened it back up after the pandemic. So um, that was still being chosen. And you could argue based on what kind of surgeries were getting done, Mm. whether or not those people would be able to live longer lives. So, wow. Uh, I mean, I suppose, yeah, all of those kind of decisions should be data-driven decisions regardless. And I guess AI just means doing that at scale. But I'm also conscious that we are pretty much at time, but I want to make sure that, um, is there somewhere that you would maybe send people to learn more about, whether it's AI more broadly or or generative AI? Where do you sort of direct people as to kind of like, you must read this or watch this? Is there anywhere that you would send people to kind of get to grips with this stuff better in a really accessible way? The best thing that I do is I follow a lot of AI ethicists on social media channels of your choice. Um, I tend to watch on Twitter a lot and a lot on LinkedIn. Those are my two uh, go-to choices for following different folks. I also kind of um, encourage people, the scientific journals are a little too much, I think, for your average person to understand because they get into very technical details. Um, So mostly if a journalist is putting it out there, they try to bring it down into regular terms. So I would just, you know, set up a good old internet news search and watch what's happening with AI in the field of AI. Just I I also um, like to look at what's happening on the Wall Street Journal with the they 
have a special AI uh, edition. So I subscribe to that. But uh, I think it's kind of, you got to look and see where is this news coming from. So just in all cases, there's always going to be those uh, fake news sites. So you got to just be careful where you're getting your information from. But but yeah, then there's a few um, specific journalists that I really enjoy reading, which is Drew Harwell. I enjoy reading uh, Cade Metz and his articles. And uh, the very first one um, that I read that was broken by, it was about the Amazon hiring algorithm was broken by Jeffrey Dastin from Reuters. So, I mean, those are three really good journalists whom I personally um, like to follow. Uh, Kari Johnson also, and he will give you an additional diversity perspective as well. Those are the ones I trust. So uh, hopefully uh, hopefully that helps some people get the, get the lowdown for the everyday person. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. I feel like I've learned loads from you. And um, yeah, you're going to send me down some rabbit holes myself as well. So lastly, Courtney, where can people find you? Oh, you can definitely find me on um, at, at, on LinkedIn. You can find me on uh, on Twitter. You can find me at www.aitruth.org, um, which is the nonprofit that I represent. Uh, you'll see my contact information there as well. And uh, definitely reach out if you have any questions, because this is what I'm doing. I'm trying to educate the public about how AI affects them in their everyday life. This has been yeah, super relevant for our audience and uh, really, really helpful. So thank you for your time. Thank you. for listening to the women of web3 podcast if you've liked this episode please do give us a rating or review on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from it really helps more people find the show check out our website womenofweb3.co to find our talent collective you can apply to be part of or post your web3 vacancies on our jobs board if you've got any questions or comments just tweet us at women of web3co and we'll see you next thursday morning <laughs>